Ephesians 5, verse 1. Paul says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience, the word of the Lord. Last week we said that if Jesus saved you, he must mold you. Today that same thought receives more definition. The metaphor of walking stands out in the second half of Ephesians nowhere more extensively than in our passage today. Walking brings a number of ideas to mind. Uh, A journey, which implies a destination, an activity, which takes effort, but also a path, a path marked out for us, not by our desires, personalities, or cultures, but by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. One of the earliest names for the Christian faith was the way. You see it a number of times in the book of Acts. And the name comes from the way Jesus lived and exemplified for his followers. He says, I am the way in the gospel of John. All that to say that when someone became a Christian, their understanding of their bodies, their minds, their relationships, their place in the world changed because Jesus is the way. And to say that Jesus is the way is to say that all other paths are not the way. Now, as soon as I say that, we're in deep trouble. Because in our pluralistic society, we've been taught, we've been conditioned that it is more virtuous to subscribe to the bumper sticker that says, my God is too big for any one religion. Or more virtuous to subscribe to to the coexist bumper sticker. You know what I'm talking about? The one that has the signs for all the major world religions. Now, if what is meant by that is common respect for all, then yes, absolutely. If what is meant is common truth held by all, no. You see, the spirit of our age says that everyone has a piece of the truth, but it's arrogant for you to say that you or your religion have cornered the market on truth. In the book Confronting Christianity that I just talked to you about, Rebecca outlines seven problems with this kind of thinking. I'm going to mention just one, and that's respect. You know, she talks, she writes and says this, to say that Christianity and Islam or Islam and Hinduism are just two sides of the same truth coin reduces pluralism to a patronizing posture by which we don't respect others enough to take their beliefs seriously. And then she recounts this conversation she was having with a friend after a debate that they went to uh, listen to. So she as a Christian, was having this conversation with a guy, a friend of hers, who was a Jewish atheist. And so she says to him, she says, I know you think that what I believe is crazy. Now her Jewish atheist friend had a girlfriend with, with them there, and so she tried to dial down the conversation. She says, well, I'm sure he doesn't really think that what you believe is crazy. But Rebecca persists, and she says, no, yes, he does. I believe that the entire universe revolves around a first century Palestinian Jew who died on a cross and was supposedly raised from the dead. That's crazy, right? And her Jewish atheist friend agreed. Yes, that's crazy. But then Rebecca proceeded to tell him how some of the things he believes are also crazy. How his scientific uh, atheism 
coupled with the belief in universal equality for all humanity, which, by the way, has no basis on an atheistic framework, how these beliefs he holds also cause him to believe some crazy things. So what she was saying is, hey, from your perspective, some of the things I believe are crazy. Some of the things that you believe are crazy, I think. And the point that she's making is that it is utterly patronizing and disrespectful to not take people's beliefs seriously. When we say, well, all religions are practically the same, it's just that you phrase things a little bit differently. That is insulting to the people holding those beliefs. You see, we've lost the ability in our society to debate within friendships. Not on social media where there's no faces and people say the most outlandish things, but within friendships. We've lost the ability to disagree, to have disagreements about the most important things in life. And so we just talk about the weather and silly things. But no, disagreeing about the most important things in life while at the same time respecting and valuing and being interested in people who don't agree with us. You see, if you are a Christian, you must be able to hold your Christian beliefs without fear, without watering them down to make them palatable to the people outside the faith. But also, you must be able to show love and respect and interest in those who disagree with you. Well, one of those beliefs that you must hold on to is that Jesus is the way. Jesus is the way. He's the path in which we must walk. Look at verse 1 of chapter 5 again. Paul says, therefore, be imitators of God. I think it's just amazing that we can even be called to be imitators of the God of the universe as beloved children and walk in love. There it is. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Paul says walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Jesus is the way and his way is the way of love. And when we walk in love, we are imitating God as beloved children. My daughter Piper sometimes goes into my closet and she puts on my North Face hoodie, which comes down to her knees, and she'll put on my shoes and sometimes even my sunglasses, and she'll come out and with a triumphant voice say, I'm daddy! <laughs> but you know, imitation is part of what happens in families. Children are constantly imitating their parents, sometimes in silly ways, sometimes in their mannerisms, their character. And when we are a part of the family of God, we're going to imitate him. And imitating God means imitating his love. Imitating God means imitating his love. Today, this text is gonna call us to walk in love, walk in the light, and walk in wisdom. Let's take those one at a time. How do we imitate God? Number one, by our conduct toward our neighbors. Verse three. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. The word love today is so generic that you can basically make it mean just about anything, right? And so when we talk about walking in love, people could take that to mean, for example, what contestants on the show The Bachelor do. 
They walk in love, right? I mean, that's what the whole show is about, walking in love. No. So Paul here defines for us what it means to imitate God, what it means to walk in love, and he takes aim at six practices that are excluded when we walk in love. First, sexual immorality. Now this refers to any sexual act outside of a marriage between a man and a woman. Then he says all impurity. This is anything unclean, like lustful thoughts, jealous motives, gender perversions, anything unholy. Then he talks about covetousness. Covetousness is a desire for more. When we give ourselves to immorality and impurity, the result is gonna be that we're going to need more. We're gonna want more. For example, how much pornography is enough? There isn't an amount. Because as you give yourself to this, it always leaves you dissatisfied, lusting for more. It's the same with every addiction. There's one author who calls addictions a banquet in the grave. And isn't that sadly true? Whatever it is that you're addicted to, no matter how much you have of that thing, it always leaves you feeling like death. So sexual immorality, all impurity, covetousness are out of place for God's people. Then he comes to the next three, which, are, which refer to speech. Filthiness, this is talking about things that are shameful. Foolish talk, this is talking about things that are foolish. Crude joking, this is talking about things that denigrate the body or sex or one of the genders or things that are holy, including God. And you can just think about how much of this kind of talk is just per, uh, pervasive in our culture. And so what Paul says here is that these things should not even be mentioned among children of God who are seeking to imitate him. It's not just that we shouldn't do them. We shouldn't think about it, which means we need to begin deleting them from our speech. Now, last week I talked to you about a group of people that pastors talk to, and those are who think they belong to God, but don't. Those who think they're Christians, but really aren't. They're deceived. Here, Paul talks about those who practice these things have no inheritance in the kingdom of God and of Christ. Now, for these people who are deceived, what hope is there? Vast vast because God is a God of power and grace and his word has the power to penetrate even our thickest deceptions and give us true knowledge of God with the attendant faith. And so for people who are in that deceived group, these verses are priceless because look at the way that Paul is reasoning. I mean, he gives us a syllogism of, of sorts. He says, children of God imitate God. So that's the first step. Children of God imitate God. Number two, those who practice sexual immorality and purity and greed are not imitating God. Number three, therefore, those who practice these things are not children of God and have no inheritance in his kingdom. And so you can ask yourself, even right here, you may or may not know whether you're deceived. Well, am I that person he's talking about? You may not know that, but you can ask yourself this. Am I practicing these things? Am I giving myself over to these things? And if so, then what makes me think that I am a part of the family of God? Do you see how helpful Paul is being to us all in those verses? Another way of saying this is, if he saved you, he must mold you. If you're a part of the family, you will look like our heavenly father. A few years ago, when we lived in Florida, Anna was with Jet and Piper at a store, Costco or one of those. And 
uh, and she was there, and now, uh, I've said before, we have four children, but Anna's joked before that she just makes different versions of me, you know, but Piper bears the strongest resemblance to me, and so she's at this store with Piper and Jet, and I'm not there. I don't think I'd ever been there at this store with her, and a worker from the store stopped her, and pointing at Jet said, he looks like you, but she, pointing at Piper, says, she looks just like her daddy. I've never seen her daddy, I've never met her daddy, but she looks just like her daddy. You never know what you're gonna get at these stores, right? It's like food and Proverbs for life. But you know, but she was saying essentially what Paul is saying here. If you're a part of the family, there must be, there must be a family resemblance. And I would say there must be a strong family resemblance. Are you in the family of God? I'm not saying, are you coming to church a couple of times a month? I'm saying, are you in the family of God? You will know by what you believe and by your lifestyle. It will show you. It will tell you if you are looking more and more like God. If you're a couple and you live together and are having sex but aren't married, what makes you think that you're a part of the family of God? Now, at Woodside, we often say we are family, by which we do not mean that any and everybody is a part of the family. What we mean is that any and everybody can be a part of the family, and I mean anybody. You could be thick or thin, short or tall, Republican or Democrat, intelligent, not so intelligent, black, white, Asian, Latino, it doesn't matter. You could be very irreligious in your past or very religious, it doesn't matter. But what matters is that you must walk in the love of Christ. And the love of Christ excludes all these shameful practices. And here's the thing, when you belong to the family, you will love what God loves and hate what he hates. You won't say, oh, I can't believe that to be a Christian, I can't sleep with my boyfriend, I can't make a crude joke, what an uptight God. You won't say that because you will know that Jesus came to die for sin, your sin, and you will understand the magnitude, the magnitude of that sin and be so glad, so grateful that there's a way out of that shameful way of life. See, that's one of the signs that you've come to true faith. You will love holiness. Your goal in life will have switched from happiness, what's gonna give me the most happiness, to holiness. How can I become the most like God? And that does not mean to become self-righteous and looking down at everybody else at all. But it does mean imitating our Father in heaven, walking in love as Christ loved us and died, died for us. Are you in the family? Are you imitating God? We imitate God by our conduct. Next, we imitate God by affirming what is good and true, by walking in the light. Look at verse seven. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, 
Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. We didn't know this text was going to fall on daylight savings. Wake up, O sleeper. I see some nine o'clockers right here, you know. Wake up, O sleeper. We know here Paul begins this section by saying he's combining the metaphor of walking with the metaphor of darkness and light. And he says, walk, walk as children of light. Now he begins this section by saying, therefore do not become partners with them. With whom? With those who are the sons of disobedience that he mentioned in verse 6. Who are deceived by empty words. Now in our culture, there are a lot of arguments that are being made right now coming from all kinds of fields and institutions that essentially are seeking to erase the darkness. Our culture tries to locate the root of our problems and everybody, religious or irreligious, knows that we are drowning in problems as a human race. But they try to locate the problem in biology or psychology or sociology while denying the darkness within every human heart. It's a doomed project. Empty words, the apostle says. Instead, he gives us, he tells us three things about the darkness. First, darkness is real. Look at verse eight. At one time you were darkness. You feel the darkness, don't you? You don't need Paul to tell you about it. You feel it. You feel it at your job. You feel it in your home. The darkness is all around us. You feel it in the scars of sexual immorality. I mean, so much of the, of the counseling and pastoring that pastors do has to do with this, with scars that people bear from immorality. Things they've done, things that have been done to them. You feel the darkness and the violations of women and children in war or not to go overseas and the violations of children and women in our white picket fence neighborhoods. You feel the darkness in the millions of refugees without a homeland. I mean, you hear these news, it just it, it must break our hearts, but the list can go on and on and on. The darkness is real. Paul also tells us that darkness is you. Darkness is us. I mean, look what he says in verse 8. At one time, you were darkness. He doesn't say you were in the darkness, even though that also is true. But he doesn't say you were in the darkness as if darkness was a room that you could go in and out of. No, he says you were darkness. This is very profound. It's not that you're in the darkness. It's that the darkness is in you. And then he says that darkness produces unfruitful works that must be exposed in verse 11. He's already listed a number of them. And rather than hiding them or becoming partners with them, they must be exposed. There are distortions of sex, distortions of gender, distortions of marriage, distortions of power, of body image, of identity, distortions of pleasure, and they must be exposed. But Paul doesn't just talk about the darkness, he now talks about the light. This is very important because as Christians, we must know what we are for. We can't just know what we're against. There are some Christians that all you hear them talk about is what they're against. Who wants to be around that? No, what are you for? What do you stand for? And so here he tells us about the light in verse 8. He says, now you are light in the Lord. Again, this is so great. He doesn't just say you're in the light, although that also is true. But he said, you were darkness, now you are light. Isn't that amazing? Just think about that conceptually, that we can be defined as light because there's a clear 
point in time when we went from darkness to light. Verse 8, he says, walk as children of light. So this is another way of saying what we saw last week. Put on the new self, created to be like God. And so with every choice we make, we're either affirming or denying that we are of the light. And then in verse 9, he says, the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. So here's the thing. People of the light don't glow. (laughs) Literally, we don't glow, right? You all look pretty opaque right now, right? Rather, the way you know that someone is of the light is by the fruit of our lives, by the results of how we live. So, for example, collectively, the warming center that we did a couple of years, a uh, year, weeks ago, feels like a couple of years ago, a couple of weeks ago to house the homeless was good and right and true. Why? Because scripture elsewhere says that when we see someone in need and do nothing, the love of God is not in us. Another example in our groups, and this happens all the time throughout our church. In our groups, when we see someone hurting and we come around them and support them and love them and sit with them and just listen to them or hold them, that's good and right and true. You see, that's what Paul says. The fruit of the light is found in what is good and right and true. So anytime you find something that is good and right and true, do it. Go for it. Don't wait for someone else to tell you. Go for it. It is part of the light to go and build that and do that and advocate for that thing. And then in verse 13, he says, anything exposed by the light becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Now this is quite amazing because this verse is not just telling us that the light exposes the darkness. It's telling us that the light transforms the darkness. It's amazing. If you told a thief stealing is wrong, well, you're exposing the darkness. But if you went on to tell him as Ephesians 4.28 tells us, well, do something honest with your own hands that you may have enough for yourself and to provide for those in need and he listens now the darkness has been transformed into light which is why Paul ends that verse 14 the way he does in the middle of 14 he says therefore it says awake O sleeper and arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you if you do not know Jesus Christ you're dead dead in your trespasses and sins. You're in the darkness. You are darkness. But Christ is light. And as Christ shines on you, you become light. Could that be today for you? Could today be the day when you, O sleeper, rise from the dead? Now don't say, well, I always believe this kind of thing. No. Have you turned from your sin? Have you renounced sexual immorality and all impurity and greed? Are you done with filthiness and foolish talk and crude joking? Does the darkness so overwhelm you that it makes you cry out, Jesus, shine on me, save me, wake me up. I want to be light, light in the Lord. How many of you are hiding in the darkness today? Hide no more. Walk in love, walk in the light, and walk in wisdom. How do we imitate God? By the wise way of our lives. Look at verse 15. He says, look carefully then how you walk. Do you see his emphasis on walking? How are you walking? What direction are you going? What's your destination gonna be? 
Walk in love, walk in the light, walk in wisdom. He says, be careful how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Verse 16, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. How do we walk in wisdom? By making the best use of the time. Have you noticed that our relationship to time is so skewed? So skewed, we overcommit ourselves, we overplan, and we live exhausted. Why? Because we think things like, oh, I have a whole weekend coming up. I have a full 48 hours coming up. What am I gonna do? No, you don't have 48 hours. You're gonna sleep at least 15 of those, and the rest are fixed, but your energy dwindles, right? Time is fixed, and so we think, man, if I just fill up my time, I'm gonna be so productive, I'm gonna be so rich, I'm gonna be so good. No, it doesn't work like that. Our energy dwindles. Anytime I take a long flight, like the 14-hour flight that I just took from Detroit to Korea on the way to Thailand, anytime I take a long flight like that, I end up only doing on, you know, in flight about a quarter of the things that I plan for. <laughs> Why? Because I'm dumb, because I think, wow, 14 hours, no distractions, this is awesome. I'm gonna read three books and I'm gonna watch two movies. Nope, I'm conked out most of the time and I wake up when the flight attendant says, chicken or beef, chicken or beef. But we have this relationship to time that is so skewed. Not only are we horrible judges of the time energy continuum, we piddle away so much of our time because we don't understand something Paul did, that the days are evil. How are you preparing? How do you spend your time? How are you preparing your heart for Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday? Are you waging war against power, pride, pleasure, and possessions? We talked about these things last week, that as we get ready for Easter, that we want to wage war against the idol of power by prayer, by confessing our dependence on God, that we don't control anything. We wage war against the idol of pride by confession, confessing our sins to God and confessing our faith before others. We wage war against the desire for pleasure, for delight apart from God by fasting so that our hunger for God may intensify. And we wage war against possessions and our desire to receive comfort from the things that we own and have by generosity by taking what God has given to us so freely and giving it away. How are you doing? Did you reflect on these things this past week? You know, last, this past Monday, I was praying and I was getting ready to work on the sermon, but I was also asking the Lord what he wanted me to fast from as I prepare my own heart for Easter. So I'm doing this and I'm praying. And as I'm praying, I see like the little notification that the New York Times Daily Briefing News had come into my inbox. So I'm praying and I thought, well, I should go read that. It only takes me like five minutes. I'll go read it and then I'll come back and keep praying. So I went, I started reading the things really fast. But then I saw this article that really caught my attention. I thought, well, maybe I should go read that and then come back to prayer. And so 30 minutes later, I came back to prayer and I was so convicted because here I was, I was praying, but then I took one step away and then another and time was ticking by and I realized this is what I need to fast from, my addiction to reading up on the news. Now what's amazing because God is so great is that the very article, very article that pulled me away from prayer 
became the vehicle by which God convicted me. Because in, on the, in that article I read that, uh, you know, the author was talking about how people who gamble, so when they go to casinos, there's serotonin and dopamine that's released in their brains, not when they're winning, but when the roulette wheel is spinning. That's when all that misguided joy is taking place. And the author went on to say that we're raising a whole generation that's releasing serotonin and dopamine when they reach into their pockets and pull out their phones to see if they have any new texts or new comments on their social media profiles. And I realized that's me with my phone and the news. I'm a tween. Who would have known that at 44 years of age, I'd be a tween? And so I realized this is what I have to fast from. My addiction to reading up on the news on my phone. How about you? Are you reflecting on your patterns? What's God saying? How are you going to arrive at Good Friday and Easter with the right posture, with your heart recalibrated before the Lord? It's so good. It's so important. Look at verse 17. Therefore, do not be foolish. But understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So rather than getting drunk on wine, he's talking about this whole thing about wisdom. Rather than getting drunk on wine, we seek to be filled with the Spirit of God. How? By our speech, our songs, our thanksgiving, and our submission one to another. So much that we could say about these things. But let me just say something briefly about our songs. Okay, our songs, eyes here, thank you. Our songs are so important. They occupy and have always occupied such an important part of the Christian community from the very beginning. Singing hymns and psalms and spiritual songs, listen, is a whole new language that helps us replace our foolish talk, our crude joking, our corrupt speech, our filthiness. It's amazing how God has done this. I mean, think about it. Just some of the things that we sang earlier today. I will rise, sing with me, stand redeemed, heaven open over me, to your name eternally, endless glory I will bring. You guys sound great. But when, when would we ever say those words? You see what singing does? It replaces the filthy, the crude, the, the, all of this language that we used to have, all this, these patterns of thinking that we used to have, and it replaces them with the most profound words and truths. When else would we say what we just said? Maybe in prayer? Yes, because our songs should inform our prayers. Think about what we're about to sing. It all revolves around your throne. Who can know your glory? So far above, yet slain for us, you alone are worthy. It's amazing what songs do. They make no sense to someone who comes in who does not know God. And that's okay. That's more than okay. And so if you don't sing, and a lot of you don't sing, you need to ask yourself, am I a part of the family? And if you say, well, singing is just not my thing. It's never been my thing. That's not a good answer. Jesus makes it your thing. 
He sang hymns with his disciples. And by his word, he made songs and singing an integral part of the way, the path marked out for us, that he marked out for us to walk in love and in delight and in wisdom. It's why we're having the worship night on March 27th. And I hope that all of you make it a priority. We made it on a Friday so you can bring your children. We have childcare for the little ones so you can bring everyone come. You say, oh no, I have to put my children to sleep. No, you don't. No, you don't. I've seen people who take their little, little ones to an 11 p.m. soccer game. It was amazing to me when I first moved here. I was like, what, you do what? Oh yeah, it's important. It's like, okay. You can all come and be a part of this. We're gonna be able to sing to one another and to God. That's what Paul says, making music in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always and for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Christian life is characterized by thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. Instead of all these other shameful practices he mentions, thanksgiving. Always. For everything. Think about that. For everything. Think about something really hard that's happened to you. This is saying, give thanks to God for that. Even the hard things, especially the hard things, because the love of Christ becomes all the more real, all the more near, all the more transformational when trials come to our doorstep and linger. And we're able to say, thank you, Lord, for loving me and giving yourself up for me. Thank you for delivering me from darkness and all things vile. Thank you that nothing in this world or the next will be able to separate me from you. And so are you imitating God? Are you an imitator of God? We do it by walking in love, walking in the light, and walking in wisdom. Let's pray. Yes, Father, we thank you for your word. A light to our feet. A lamp for our path. I pray, dear God, that you would help us love you and honor you and be close to you, God. I pray that you would help us to walk in love. Teach us, Father, how to hold truth with grace, how to not water down what we receive as revelation from your scripture to make it more palatable to those on the outside, but rather help us grow in our boldness and courage as we also grow in our love for others, in our respect for others, even in our interest for them and getting to know them and their plight, that we may bring the gospel of light. We love you. We trust you. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.